We're going to continue today in our series on David, where we've been looking at different relationships that he has, different things in his life, and kind of pulling him out, saying, who is this man, and, and why is he so celebrated? And I'll be honest with you, as we jump into today, I'm a little bit nervous, and I'm a little bit nervous because this topic and this relationship that we're going to look at today is a bit close to home for me, and something I've wrestled through uh, probably more than um, I've ever shared with you before. And when we did our Relationship Toolbox series, when we kicked off the year, we talked about like how we deal with people, how we deal with people who frustrate us or people who are closer to us than we think we are with them and how we have different circles of people. But there was something we didn't talk about that, that kind of is a difficult subject. And many of you came up to me and asked me questions like, okay, then what do I do with this type of person? And the type of person that we continue to bring up it's almost always, I want to say, the exception to the rule, but it's not really an exception because we all have people like this in our life. You know the relationships that you have with people who are destructive? Destructive people. What do you do with destructive people? And I know you're probably thinking, like, Jimmy, you can't say people are destructive. Like, that sounds so bad. You know, I used to think the same thing until I realized that there are destructive people there are people in my sphere of influence and in my journey that have actually, their intent was to harm me. Their intent was to say things about me, to lie about me, to um, push me down. Their goal was not to build me up. They were destructive in my life. And there are always destructive people in our lives. People who intentionally try to cause harm on you. They intentionally poke the bear that you, you know, that poke the bear to, to rile it up to say, see, I knew you were worse than you think you are. And they push us. Now, not everyone who's mean fits into this category. And I need to say that because sometimes we use words like, oh, they triggered me and that person triggers me. And, and when we use that word, sometimes it is very valid. There are certain types of people who are dangerous and destructive in our lives. And then there's other people who are just tough to deal with. Okay, there is a difference. There are some people that are just and tough. If a boss yells at you because you didn't do your job, they're not destructive. They're a manager, you know what I mean? There's a difference. So we can't just kind of write everybody off that's mean and say, well, they're destructive because that's just not true. And yet, it's true that we do have these difficult yet destructive people and what makes it really hard in our lives is when it's someone who's in authority over us. Someone who has say into our life, what we do, what we don't do, what we can do, what we shouldn't do. When someone who's in authority over us is a destructive person, this becomes a very, very difficult situation. I was hoping and expecting an amen there. <laughs> have you been in this situation before? I'm guessing that you have today. Um, if you have not, you will be because destructive people are around us. And if you haven't been before, this is not in here, but I just feel this, the need to say this. Maybe you are that person and you have something to think through right now. So as we look at the story of David, no one understood what it means to have someone who's destructive in their life more than David did. 
David, as we've been talking about, was this young boy who was anointed to be king when he was about 10, and, and he was in this relationship with the current king. His name is King Saul. And remember, King Saul is our first king of Israel. And, and Jeremy, when he was talking about King Saul, remember Samuel went to go pick a king, and he picked a tall, dark, and handsome guy. Like, this is who it is. He's built. He's a head taller than everyone. He's the guy you'd want to be king. And, and it's important that we don't just say, well, Saul was the worst. Because check it out. Saul took what was this chaotic group of tribal uh, Middle Eastern you know, people, and he said, we're going to make tribes into a nation. That takes a lot of work, a lot of organization. And he did it. He made tribes into a nation. And then he created an army out of nothing. They didn't have an army before. He now has an army. He was able to win battle after battle after battle and train all these warriors. He was a great leader. He um, was a man who pursued God so early on that he was dedicated to making sure that God was ahead of him before he went into most of his battles. He, at, at many times, we see him even prophesying, like the spirit of God comes on him and he, he begins to talk um, for and about God among the people. This is an anointed man. This is a good leader. This is a good man. He is. At some point, these battles begin to continue. And it makes sense that people would follow him as he comes back over and over and over. But in 1 Samuel chapter 17, what we find is that there's a moment that Saul doesn't enter into the battle himself, but then asks for someone to fight this giant from the Philistines named Goliath. And this young shepherd boy who was anointed probably about six or seven years before this to be king, but has done nothing but be a shepherd and an Uber Eats driver for his dad and his brothers. It's in there. You can read it. Camel Eats. There we go. Um, this boy David comes up. He defeats Goliath. He becomes this, uh, this commander because Saul's like, whoever this kid is, I want him on my team. I'm, I'm hiring this guy. He's mine. And so Saul brings David into his court. And as he brings him into his court, he continues to trust him with more and more and more. And David continues to excel at everything Saul gives him. And he's like, Saul's like, this is great. And they go off for this major campaign. They come back after Israel's been unbelievably successful. And as they come back in, in chapter 18, things shift because we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6. It says, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. You know, this is a big party. This is your, we just won the Super Bowl party that's going down and everyone's excited. We win and, and everyone's, you know, woo, this is it. And it continues in verse 7 and says, and this was their song. They got, they got their fight songs. You ready? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul is great. David's even greater. I don't think they're, they're trying to get Saul all worked up, right? I don't think they're trying to do this, but, but that's what's happening. Could you imagine that? Saul, you've been the man, you've been the man, you've been the man, you've killed thousands, but this guy, oh, tens, thousands, like, it's even greater. And how would you feel 
Well, here's how Saul feels. Verse 8, it says, this made Saul, what's that word there? Very, it made Saul very angry. That makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, it made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Could you imagine for a moment the person you hired, the person you honored, becomes the person everyone around you thinks is greater than you? You brought them on the team. And everyone else likes them more than they like you. Saul's emotions in this passage, they're, they're bubbling up. His emotions are anger and jealousy. Anger and jealousy are the two things that define who he is at this point. And if you know destructive people, I will tell you that anger always seems to be a trait that sits with destructive people. Anger sits right under the surface at any time. And if you're thinking, if I go talk to them and say the one wrong thing, it's going to blow up everywhere, you might be dealing with a destructive person. If you right now find yourself going, I don't like that you said that, and I'm going to give you something after, you may be a destructive person. Anger's always at the surface, ready to explode. It's... Destructive people are always paranoid. They're always jealous. They're wondering, who is it that's going to take that spot? Who is it? You need to watch out for them. Watch out for them. And they begin to see people as less than and wondering if they succeed. How is this going to make me look in front of people? Destructive people usually have themselves as the focus and their appearance before others as the driving motivator of that anger and jealousy. So Saul right now, he's simmering. He is simmering. Verse 10 tells us, the very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul and he began to rave in his house like a madman. Okay, there's a lot going on in this verse. Would you agree? There's a lot going on. When we read things like this and we're like, wait, God can give someone a tormenting spirit? A tormenting spirit? God does this? Um, Listen, when we read through the scriptures, what we find is that God has set up a way for us to live. And he has said, this is my ideal for your life. And when you work and live and love within the boundaries that I've set up for you, life is different. But the moment that you start to go outside of these boundaries that I've set up for you, it just gets harder. It becomes more destructive. It becomes more evil. And it becomes darker. And Saul has walked with God so much in his life. He has pursued God. And now he's making conscious, willing decisions not to follow God, to engage in his anger, to engage in his jealousy, to let bitterness begin to dwell and and work within him. And he's looking at this and these are not traits that people who follow God should be demonstrating all the time. And yet this is what he's doing. He's consciously choosing something else. So what he's doing is when any of us consciously choose to disobey God, we are opening ourselves up to a dark and destructive world, to influences in our world that say what you're doing here should be, could be, and is quite normal 
So stick with it. If we ask the Holy Spirit to come into our life to fill us so that we would have these fruits of the Spirit, he's growing this in us when we choose to disobey God and consciously continue to do it. We're opening ourselves up to dark influences and this torment that comes along with it. And Saul has done that simply saying God has allowed Saul to experience his just results. Saul, you've continued to turn. You've continued to disobey me. This spirit that's on you is the spirit of the world, and I'm just going to allow this to, to, to play out. I'm not protecting you in this moment. He is tormented. He is tormented. But we read later that his peace, he actually does come to moments where he's so frustrated, and then, like a madman, he's actually able to calm down. And you know what calms him down? It happens to be this slayer of tens of thousands of people who's not only a great warrior, but a great musician. And these songs that David had learned in his years of silent shepherding by himself, he'd begin to play them, and Saul's soul, his spirit would be soothed. He would find this calmness when David played his harp. But there is a point in the next chapter, later on in, in verse 10, that we read that David was playing the harp, and as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Twice. I don't know about you, but someone throws a spear at me, and you're like, bing, bing, bing. I don't know that I want to work there anymore. I'm just saying. You know, I like my life. I like the way that I live. I like breath. This is a good thing. The intention was to kill him. And yet David finds himself in this house and he's not thrown at once. He's thrown at twice. I know that you may have had some difficult days at home, at work, at school. But if your boss, parent, or teacher has not thrown a spear at you to kill you twice, you're doing okay right now. Okay, there's something to compare to. This day at work is not ideal, but destructive leaders, you know what they do? They've always got a spear in hand because it shows authority for them. And destructive leaders influence the people who are around them. They just do. Destructive leaders have this way of making everyone around them kind of agree with them. You would hope that someone would have said to Saul, you threw a spear at the giant killer. Do you know who that was? But when you're scared of people, especially destructive people, most won't speak up because you know what they're scared of? A spear coming at them. Destructive leaders throw spears. And it's sad to say that destructive people oftentimes find themselves in places of authority because people are scared to challenge them. I know it works this way in the world that we live, but... What grieves me deeply is um, I know how this has worked out for many of us, myself included, in the church world. You would hope that destructive leaders who throw spears would not be the pastors, the elders, the small group leaders, the team leaders in a church. But I know many of your stories and I know that that's not true. This is not part of my story that I share often, and so I'm even a bit nervous sharing it with you because um, I, I just, I, I, I don't know. 
I've worked at a handful of churches. And I am so grateful for the privilege of being um, freed up to dedicate my life to God to work, whether it was with teenagers, whether it was with families, um, you know, having different kinds of roles at multiple different churches. But I have found myself under destructive leaders at different times. Um, because of this, I still have trouble trusting leaders. Even those who are in authority over me in our district, I, I have trouble. I wrestle thinking, when will you throw a spear at me? When will you hit me? And I, I have that feeling often because um, when I was young, I had quite a few spears thrown my way, but I was too young to really know that's what was happening. And I had grown up in a way that said, if you're in a place, you stay there and you just take it. Like, listen, people are tough to deal with sometimes. And I wasn't dealing with a tough boss. I was dealing with a destructive one, but I didn't know the difference. And so things were said. Things were done. Um, and I was deeply wounded. When I started here at Crossbridge, I, I had left a church and churches before that where I was definitely in um, a place of spiritual abuse. That was very difficult. And as I began to see my counselor down here in this area to work through what just happened, as I transitioned even into the lead pastor role here um, seven years ago, eight years ago, whatever it was, uh, I... I I remember unpacking my story with my counselor and he looked at me and he just said, Jimmy, I can't even believe you're still a pastor. Why, why do you continue to do this after what you've received? And the first thought in my mind was I must have done something wrong. Like maybe I should have left. Maybe I'm gonna be just like the people before me. Maybe, maybe I'm a spear thrower. I shouldn't do this. I should not be pastoring. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment. Maybe that's my lot in life is to serve under spear throwers. And I'm just gonna have to be the guy who dodges well. And, and now that I know, like how to, I had no idea which way was up because of the abuse that had happened, the spears that had been thrown. Um, and it left me, I'll tell you, in a deeper, darker place asking God, do I really want to be doing this right now? Am I... Do I have the character to lead as a pastor and not hurt people, not throw spears? And I'll, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I don't know, because this is really hard. This is really hard. Maybe you've been hurt too. Maybe you have, maybe it has been an elder or a pastor, maybe at another church, maybe here at Crossbridge, maybe I have been the one who has thrown a spear at you unintentionally or intentionally, and, and I need to ask for your forgiveness for that and say that I am deeply sorry. Maybe you're watching online right now with us because you are terrified of ever stepping foot back into a church because of what has been done to you but you're safer on your couch than you are here in person. And I, I'm just telling you, I understand. And if you are here today and you have been wounded, whether it's here or someone else, I just want to stop and say thank you for being here. Thanks for trusting Crossbridge enough to say, all right, I'm willing to figure this out. 
I'm willing to give church another shot. I'm willing to give a small group another shot. I'm willing to try again. And I know that you got reservations, but thank you for trusting us enough. And I'm going to tell you right up front, you may get wounded here too, because look at the people around you and your pastor. We're all sorts of messed up, okay? You are too, but I'm just banking on the fact that we can forgive each other when we ask, that we can own our times of like, I didn't mean that, I am so sorry, and ask for forgiveness and repentance. You may not be perfect, we're not perfect. Welcome here. (laughs) We're not. But I really hope that you are able to take steps towards healing in Jesus every single week because our pain is covered by the cross. We just sang about Isaiah 53, that it's through his stripes that we are healed, that we can find healing from church hurt. We can find healing from people who have hurt us only through Christ. And I will tell you that, that Saul does not change his patterns. This destructive leader with a spear in his hand does not change how he operates. He actually gets even worse. Um, He stays there in the end of chapter 18. He sends David on like this suicide mission to marry his daughter. And David, again, he succeeds. And so now Saul's daughter marries him. But the problem for Saul is his daughter loved David. So now Saul's looking at the person he hired and he did not gain a son-in-law. He lost his daughter. Is the way that he sees this. You know, for Saul, there's all this trouble. And so he goes to the next best, best thing, David's best friend, who we talked about last week, Jonathan. In chapter 19, he's like, Jonathan, listen, you've got to help me figure out a way to assassinate David. He's going to take your throne. He's the one who's in. You need to help me kill him. And Jonathan's like, um, let's not do that. And then we get into that whole pact that they made last week about everlasting love and how they were going to love each other so deeply. He says, no. Um, and, and so then in chapter 19, verse 9, we read that one day when Saul was sitting at home with what? A spear in hand. This guy hangs out with spears. Destructive people are always holding spears. And, and this tormenting spear from the Lord suddenly came upon him again. And as David played his harp, Saul hurled his spear at David. But David dodged out of the way, and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. It's his wife who helps him sneak out because she values him and says, you're definitely not safe. Oh, what gave that away? David didn't wait, did he? In chapter 19, we read after this third time that after David escaped, we find that, that Saul is so frustrated with him that he plans a secret raid on his house that his wife helps him to get out. A secret raid waiting for him to come out so that he can kill him. And now David goes out the window on the run after being the giant slayer. And you know what he is right now? All alone. He's all alone. He has less now than he had when he was a shepherd. There's no sling. There's no weapon. There's no rod. There's no green pastures, still waters. There's no music. There's not even sheep for company. And David does what many of us do when we have been wounded so deeply as he runs. And he runs into a cave and he finds himself alone. And the more you read the story of David, you're going to read about a crybaby, a dude whose tears fill every chapter because he's so wounded, so hurt. My God, where have you gone? Are the prayers that we read from him in the back of a cave. No wife, no family. And just 
like God shaped him on those shepherd fields all alone, God begins to shape a new man in these caves all alone because it's in our silence, it's in our solitude that God shapes us into who he wants. But usually it's after we've been so wounded because most people will never change until the pain of where they are is so great that they have to. Do you notice David stayed for three throws? Three throws. The only voice that David hears in the back of that cave is probably his own echoing off the wall as a chorus. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, the story continues. In verse 1, it says, So David left Gath and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And soon his brothers and all his relatives joined him there. Then others began coming. Men who were in trouble or in debt or just discontented until David was the captain of about 400 men. David, who had become the hero and celebrated, right, now becomes the magnet for people who are in trouble. David's family, they came to him because we all understand that you kill the person's family who is the troublemaker. This way you secure yourself. That's, and it wouldn't have been outside of Saul's commands, So his family comes to him, and then all these liars, these thieves, these people in debt, people who are discontent, they find David because you know what they're assuming now? You feel the same way, so you'll understand me. I'll follow you because then we can gripe about things together. That's what we're going to do. And if you ever read this chapter, you'll notice something about David. Not once does he badmouth Saul. Not once does he throw Saul under the bus and say, what a dirtbag, right? Can you believe that? He even throws spears like a girl. Nothing. He says nothing. David spent more time in tears, and now all these people who were following him are like, what did we do? Who is this guy? He commanded so many of us, and now this is it? He lost it. All because of a destructive leader. So I need to ask you the question that David is asked in this. What do you do when spears are thrown at you? What are you supposed to do when a spear is thrown at you? And I'll tell you so much um, of of what we're looking at here in this story and what to do has been, um, I've been thinking about this for weeks And kind of dreading this message a little bit because I don't like this. It's hard. And when we follow Jesus, it means it costs us deeply to follow him. This is not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And a lot of what um, we're looking at came out of a book uh, called A Tale of Three Kings. And it's, it's an amazing book. I would, if you are in a position of leadership or under a leader in any way, I would highly encourage you to get it. It's, it's like this big. It's got print that's like this big. And I, as someone who is um, ADHD and dyslexic and does not read books well in like physical copy, I finished this baby in like two hours. All right, so you could really, I mean, you could take care of this. It's amazing. But in this book, it, it's so good. There are four things that I've begun to pull out of this in conversations with some of my other friends of what did we do? One of my best friends, we've had this conversation because we both worked under the same person who threw spears at both of us. What do you do when someone throws a spear at you? The first skill that we're going to learn from David very fast is don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. When someone throws a spear at you, don't retaliate. Retaliate. Because you know what we want to do? 
When a spear comes at us, we duck, pull, and chuck. That's what we want to do. When someone throws something big at us, we want to throw something back. You want to yell at me? Well, fine. I'm going to yell at you. You want to lie about me? I'll make lies about you. You want to try to blow me up on Facebook? Well, guess what? I can respond in the comments and make you look like a fool. This is throwing a spear back. And if we deal with destructive people, the way that destructive people deal with us will develop the skills to become a destructive person. If you deal with the people that are destructive to you, the way that they have dealt with you, you will become the very thing that you can't stand. The very thing that you despise. In this book, A Tale of Three Kings, Gene Edwards, um, on page 15 and 16 of this book, says this, and it's a bit of a quote, but just bear with me because it's so good. When we throw a spear back, this is what he says, in doing this small feat of returning thrown spears, you will prove many things. You are courageous. You stand against the wrong. You are tough and can't be pushed around. You will not stand for injustice or unfair treatment. You are the defender of the faith, keeper of the flame, detector of all heresy. You will not be wronged. All of these attributes then combine to prove that you are also, obviously, a candidate for kingship. Yes, perhaps you are the Lord's anointed after the order of King Saul. There's also a possibility that some 20 years after your coronation, you'll be the most incredibly skilled spear throwers in all the realm. And most assuredly by then, quite mad. How you respond to destructive people will determine the type of person that you become. If we follow in that pattern, we become just as mad. And I know it's not easy, but this is what Jesus taught us. And, and I love that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome. And, and this church in Rome who is under persecution, these people are being rounded up and, and persecuted like we would never understand in our culture here. Do you know what he tells them how to deal with enemies that are both inside and outside the church? Because the church is divided a little bit here and they're like getting at each other. This is what he says in Romans 12. He says, dear friends, never take revenge. Let me say it again. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Now Paul's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy here. And, and when he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 32, he's saying that dealing with destructive people is not new. If it's in Deuteronomy, Moses is telling the Israelites, you're going to go in and you're also within yourself dealing with destructive people and going to want to take vengeance. You're going to want to throw a spear. Paul's saying to the church, you're in Rome. You're going to want to throw spears at each other when they're thrown at you. It's just going to happen. And so I confidently can stand here today saying, I am sure spears have been thrown at you. And I am sure that you've wanted to throw them back if you haven't already. I'm sure of it because we live this together. And, and it took faith in God for the Israelites to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to listen, God. We're not going to take vengeance. We're not going to try to all of a sudden turn around now that we're this military power and go back to Egypt and, Egypt and just stick it to them. We were slaves there too long. Let's just give it to them. Nope. It took faith in God for David to do with Saul what he did when he said, I will run. It took faith for the Roman church to do this. They're being sold out by people in their church, hunted by the government. It will take you and I a massive amount of faith 
today to realistically say, God, I'm pissed. They're the worst right now, but I trust you and will not throw back. I will not retaliate. This will not happen without the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I are not strong enough on our own to do this. Our sinful nature will always duck, pull, and chuck. This will take a massive amount of faith. And, and here's the thing, though. Just because we don't retaliate doesn't mean we do nothing. Okay, it's really important. Just because we don't retaliate doesn't mean we don't do nothing. This is the second skill David teaches us. Come on, common sense. Get out of the strike zone. Right? Get out of the strike zone. Don't get hit. It may be crazy to say this, but when it comes to destructive people, um, FYI, talking doesn't work. Talking does not work. You cannot talk to destructive people and think they will understand you. In 1 Samuel 19, we see here, but David dodged out of the way and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. David was not waiting for a fourth spear, right? He got out. He created space between himself and Saul. And you'll see that he's like, never from this point does he badmouth him. He loves Saul, but he loves him from afar. He loves him from afar. He needed to create that space. And you know what that space that we create between ourselves and destructive people is called? It's called a boundary. It's called a boundary. We have to set up boundaries in our life because we know that destructive people will jump the fence. They'll want to cross it. We have to set that up. They will never do that. We talked about that in week six of our relationship toolbox series. Go back to it. You can figure out what boundaries do I need to set up in my life? These fences that are so important. Boundaries, they allow us to say that this is what I am and I'm not going to allow you to do. This is my boundary. Boundaries keep us safe. But with destructive people, you can't talk and tell them your boundaries because they will not listen. David can't say to Saul right now, hey, um, king, like... I, it just really hurts my feelings each time you throw spears and try to like pin me to the wall like a kebab. I mean, you know, um, it, my, it's, every time you have it in hand, it triggers me a little bit. And so I'm getting nervous about coming into work. And I know when I play my liar, I'm kind of focused in on it. And so when, when, you, when you do this, it makes me a little like uneasy. Is Saul going to listen to this? Not at all. Why? Because destructive people do not respond to talking. You can't just stop and say, these are the things. You can't even stop saying, hey, stop throwing spears because that's what they do. Destructive people don't listen. They respond to action and the action was get out. I will, this surprise, you ready? This is like one of the biggest truths for this morning, ready? You will never win a Facebook or Instagram argument. You just won't. You will sacrifice relationships. You will hate people. You will judge them and become critical of them. And the very thing that you hate that they're doing, you will find yourself doing if you respond to the vitriol and the stupid stuff that people put online. You just will. If you think that you can win an argument against somebody in the section of comments, you have sorely mistaken the other person and your own can, you know, your eloquence of words, surely they'll understand. No, they won't understand. You'll never win. You're better off saying, delete, block. This person, I just can't do it. I did that a ton during COVID. I blocked half the people I knew, and I was like, I like them better. 
And then I got off of Facebook pretty much uh, completely. And now, you know, when something happens, Eileen will be like, I tagged you in this. And I'm like, oh, that means I need to go like click something um, to say it's okay. Uh, I got off of it completely. I liked people so much better. Like I love not knowing what people think. Because you know what you think? It's stuff that's really weird sometimes. We could talk about it. But there's no arguments that are going to be won. You've got to stop. There's no way to win this. And, and let me tell you, at some situations, this is not going to work. I get it. At home, this might be tougher. You're going to have to figure out boundaries to get yourself out of the strike zone, but you can't wait. And David did not wait. And I need to tell you that, that when it comes to your home environments or even some work environments, if you are here and you find yourself in an abusive environment, you need to get out and you need to get out now. You need to get out and get out now. I am begging you, if your relationship, your marriage is physically, sexually, mentally, emotionally abusive, where you are taking the hits when you go home and you cannot have conversations and it is destructive for you, I am begging you to get out. I am not saying go get divorces, that's great. I I understand that God hates divorce, but God also hates abuse. He just does. And I need to tell you, if you find yourself in that situation, I I am begging you from the depths of who I am to get out. If it's um, a legal thing, call the police and have allegations, you know, do it. File. File to have them taken away because if you need that boundary, they may need to be gone or maybe you need to be gone. And if you need to be gone, let me know. We have people at Crossbridge who say, I can have a room. I'll have a room for somebody. I'll, I'll help You need to get out. You need to get out because you are worth so much more than being abused. You cannot stand for it. And if you are scared of doing it on your own, if it's in a marriage, I have a couple of people who would be gladly standing beside me as we stand beside you to make sure that this happens because you can't do it alone. I know, it's hard. But there's abuse that's happening. Get out, get out, get out. Does that make sense? Okay, because um, so often it's, it's so like, oh, just stick with it, forgive, you know, just stay with it and, and forgive. Listen, that, that's the third skill that David teaches us is um, forgive, but don't forget. I know you're probably thinking like, wait a second, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says forgive and forget. That's what we always teach people, forgive and forget. That's not what the Bible says, and that's one of the biggest lies the church teaches. The Bible never anywhere says forgive and forget. That's a, a distorted, completely jacked up um, interpretation of Jeremiah 31, which it says this in verse 34, the last bit of it. It says, and I, and that I is talking about God, will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. This is a metaphor that God is using to say, yes, I do know about all of your sins. And because of Jesus and his sacrifice for us, I am choosing not to see them. I am choosing that because of Jesus. This is not what God wants for you and for me. This is who God is and what he does. When people hurt us, God has given us the common sense to say, I don't want to do that again. Right? That's good common sense. We are called to forgive, but we are not called to trust right away. All right? We're called to forgive, but not trust right away. Um, we're called to, to hopefully see restoration in relationships, but that doesn't mean it has to happen while you're next to each other. Um, I, maybe this will make a little bit more sense. If, if I, Bill, if I came to you on Friday and I said, hey, I, I don't have a car. Can I borrow the keys to your car for this Friday? I'm going to go to a party, hang out with my friends, but I don't have a car. Can I borrow your car? 
Sure. Tosses me the keys. I'm excited. It's Friday comes. I got the car. I'm at the party. I get smashed. And I decide, you know what? In great common sense, why don't I just drive home? I drive home. And I get into an accident as I take this car and I wrap it um, right around, you know, no one else is injured. The car is completely totaled. I'm okay. Walk away fine. And Bill, I am so sorry, man. I just, I thought I was going to be okay. Here's your keys. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? There'd be forgiveness. That's the, right. Great. 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 Good. Good answer. Good answer. Um, did I put gas in it? Well, it all leaked out, you know. Um, if the tow truck took it. So that makes sense, doesn't it? Would you forgive me? This is what we're called to do as followers of Christ. We forgive each other. So, you know, the, you got your rental car, everything is ready to go. And three weeks later, you got your new car. And I come to you, Bill, and I'm like, listen, I still don't have my car. And I know you got your new one, which is cool. Um, can I borrow your car this Friday? Because I have a party coming up that I'm really excited about. Can I borrow your car this Friday? Uh, right? Uh, we find this like, uh, did, did you all feel that hesitation? If I came to you and asked that again, would you say yes? It's like, uh, no, you forgave me, but do you trust me? No way! Should you trust me? No way! But we make the mistake of thinking because someone did something horrible to us and I forgive them, I should give them the opportunity to do that again. That's not biblical. Biblical is set your boundary, get away, and then reset. And if that destructive person keeps coming at you and you're thinking, but I want to be restored, you can. It just has to be from afar. And they may not even want that because restoration takes two. Restoration takes two people and trust takes time to rebuild because it is gained in inches. It is lost in yards. You need to give some people who have hurt you deeply time to regain that trust. Do not trust them again right away. You need to forgive but you should not forget, but you should not. And forgiveness doesn't mean you're holding this over them over and over. Forgiveness really means I'm choosing to say that that didn't happen and forgiving you from that offense. And I'm not going to keep bringing it up, but I'm also not going to let you that close to me again. We'll work there. Does that, does that make sense? So we forgive, but we don't forget because you're responsible for how you respond. That's all that you can control. You cannot force anyone to do anything else. And then we get to the last and the fourth skill that we learn from David is to trust the sovereignty of God. To trust the sovereignty of God. You remember the passage that Dell read for us? That funky little passage from 1 Samuel 24? Saul had heard about David's location on the run. He goes to find him with a mission to kill him. And in verse 3, we read that at the place where the road passes some of the sheepfold, Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in the very cave. <laughs> I, I love this. I love the Bible. If you're like, this is boring. Oh, come on. Saul's taking a pit stop because he's got to drop something in the cave. He doesn't want to drop where his people are going like, to step on. You know what I'm saying? Some of the translations say that his, he put robes by his feet. And so he's now in this position. You're never more vulnerable than when you're in that position. Right, he's, he's balancing, he's trying to take care of himself here. Um, and now where is he? He's in the cave that David and his men are in. And so what happens is his men come up and they're like, God is on your side. You could spear him right through the side hole, never know it was even you. This is it, God must be with you. Let me tell you, just because it seems like an open door doesn't mean God opened it. When you pray, God, open the door you want me to go through, just because it's open doesn't mean it's God. Okay, because here it looks like an open door. David, kill him. And he's like, 
we'll see. And he sneaks up little by little. And he's like, I can't do this. Adele, I loved when you put that emphasis on his conscience. The Holy Spirit convicted him. And he's like, I can't kill him. So he clips the bottom of his, the hem of his robe. He sneaks back. And then, you know, Saul does what he needs to do. He gets out. And do you notice he doesn't approach Saul right away, does he? He approaches Saul when Saul's a long way off and he can still hear him from the top of the mountain. He's like, hey, hey. Saul's like, what the? He turns around to see David. And when he sees David, there's a boundary now, isn't there? There's some space. David's not an idiot. He's dealing with a very skilled spear thrower. And in verse 10, it says this. It says, this very day, David says to him, you can see with your own eyes. Isn't it true? It isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. And some of my men told me to kill you, kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He's the Lord's anointed one. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. Let me tell you that when you trust in God's sovereignty, what that simply means is, God, I don't understand how this is going to work. I don't understand how not retaliating. I don't understand how, how not throwing back benefits anybody. I don't understand how creating a boundary or leaving this relationship is going to do anything. I don't understand all this, but I trust you and your sovereignty. Sovereignty is that God is going to move all things to bring himself glory, and that includes the garbage in our life. It doesn't mean God made it happen. It means that God can make things happen in it. And we trust the sovereignty of God instead of grabbing control like you and I always want to do when someone throws spears at us. We want to duck, we want to grab, we want to chuck, and then we hold it. And as we hold it, you know what we do with spears that we hold? We use them on others around us. And we've got to trust and say that, God, I so bad want to throw this but I'm going to lay this at your feet. And as 21st century followers of Jesus who commands us to pray for our enemies, what we are called to do is to lay our spears at the foot of Jesus because in that passage in Isaiah, we read that he was to be speared. And we read that on the cross, Jesus Christ was speared and his blood and water poured out for us so that we would not have to throw spears again. If you right now find yourself in a place that you have been throwing spears, you need to repent. You need to ask God for forgiveness and for those that you have thrown them at for forgiveness. Humble yourself like David and bow before the king that you think is an authority. And you're like, I don't even like you, but I will, I will say that I am sorry. It's going to make me look weak. Yep. Welcome to following Jesus. Where winning is losing. This is the way that we follow Jesus together. The Mandalorian way. If you're thinking right now, I can't do that. That spear is all that I've got. Okay. I hope you know how to use it for defense because those you spear will throw them back. I've had to make amends with the churches that I've worked at and had to talk to those pastors and elders and work through things. And um, my wife and I could tell you that it was some of the darkest, hardest times in our marriage. Um, there's times we couldn't even drive by former churches because it would bring anxiety when we were within a mile of those places. Like it would, it would send us into full panic because of what went down. And it was like, <sighs> but I will never tell you what happened. 
But everyone there could tell you how horrible I was, how much of a liar, a cheater, or whatever, as I was lied about constantly. And we always said, should we fight back? And it was like, no. And I lost. And in doing so, I feel like I've never won more because I understand Jesus. And I would take that over anything. I want to invite you to lose today. I know it's so inspiring, isn't it? Inspire me, Jimmy. Yeah, well, lose with me. Lose with me for Jesus. If we were a bunch of losers for Jesus, isn't that who he came for? Isn't that who he drew in? Isn't that when everyone's throwing spears at these people down and out? He says, you come. You come. I got you. I know what that's like. Today, I want to invite you to lose with me as we follow Jesus. And that's what we approach our communion table declaring is his story of death. His story saying, I'm going to give up my body and spell out my blood. For what? For the forgiveness of sins because you're going to throw a spear. It's going to happen. But I can forgive that. Come on, let's do it. And so today, would you stand with me as we approach the communion table? If you find yourself right now in a place where you need to repent, take time to do that before you come forward. If you find yourself so deeply wounded by some that you're like, I need prayer before I can do this or I need courage for this, I wanna invite you to, um, right after service, come to our prayer area. We would love to pray for you and just say, hey, we don't have answers, but we know and it hurts and it's hard, but we wanna pray for you and stand alongside you. And if you find yourself in that place of abuse today and you need help, I, I need you to talk to me so that we can get you the help that you need because you should not be there. You should not be there. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for dying for us, for taking the spears that we all want to throw back. Holy Spirit, we invite you to convict us deeply of where we have thrown our spears. Lord, I confess to you, I see that so much. Even in this exact moment, I just have pictures of my kids. And I am sorry, and I know I will need to repent to them today for some very specific things there that I've thrown. And so, Lord, would you forgive me first and give me the courage to ask them. Lord, we do this together because we want to look like you and love as best we can so that people would follow you. We would all lose together and see this world redeemed. Lord, we take communion remembering your body, your blood on the cross for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When you feel like your heart is in a place where you can receive communion, please come.